Welcome to the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Tackling some of the biggest issues in men's mental health. Today's show is actually sponsored by a company called Forgery Cycling. I have known the Forgery Cycling guys for years and confirm they're a great local Leeds-based company. You may have seen their bright green trucks around Yorkshire. So if you run a business and you need a commercial waste collection, they will definitely help you out. They offer various size bins and can collect general waste, glass, food, etc. They also offer really competitive skip hire with a great service. Bookings and payments can all be made online, www.forgeskiphire.com, making it really easy and quick to book a skip. I used to work for Forge. Harvey, the gentleman who owns it, is the one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Anyone who has a business, Forge Recycling. Thank you. As always, we have the very modest Dr. Tom Cliff from the University of Leeds, who is a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is the artist Grayson Perry, best known for his often autobiographical and sometimes subversive work in ceramics, sculpture, tapestry and printmaking, chronicling the contemporary British society. An early Turner Prize winner, Perry has captured the public's imagination through exhibitions such as the critically acclaimed The Tomb of the Unknown Craftsman at the British Museum and several television programmes looking at issues of class and masculinity. One of those was in Durham. The later explored in his book, which me and Dr Tom have been reading, The Descent of Man. He was invited to present the Reflectures in 2012, and he also guest-created the 2018 Royal Academy Summer Exhibition. Uh, Really hope you enjoy the show. Here you go. Yorkshire Grit. Where are we, Tommy? Well, yeah, um, could you actually set the scene of where we are, Grayson? We are in my studio in Islington, Mm. um, which is an old watch factory so it's about 100 years old. And I think, I think it was the last unconverted industrial building left in Islington. In, because Islington was one of the great first places to be gentrified, which oh. is now a swear word. <laughs> <laughs> Gentr- it's, it's an amazing building. There's wooden beams. and it, It's exactly how I envisaged it. Is it? I uh, grew up, both family artists, the Motels in Yarm, and a friend, was, Miles Richmond, was a student at Bomberg. And there was always, this just reminds me of me being a kid. Yeah, I call this my last studio because I've always had horrible studios until this one. And every day I come here, I love it. But it bankrupted me practically to buy it. Okay, I'm going to get into it um, because I love cycling. Um, I hope you love cycling. I love cycling. (laughs) (laughs) Just a really generic open question. Can you tell us about how you got into cycling? Um... What drew you in? In a serious way. I mean, I've always cycled since I was a kid. And when I was a kid, you know, we used to have ratty old bikes with speedway handlebars that we used to ride down nice. the bomb holes, you know. Yeah. So, so, we, you know, everybody of my age thinks we invented mountain biking. Um, and I used to draw full suspension mountain bikes on the back of my exercise book when I was 15, <laughs> which was 1975. Right. Um, so I sort of felt like I invented mountain biking in many ways. But I'm sure everybody my age thinks that. And then um, I was put off sport because even though I was a pretty good natural athlete when I was at school, um, my stepfather, who was really in sport, was my kind of domestic enemy. So therefore, he once said when I won some race in the sports day, he said, oh, it was about time you did something with your body instead of your mind. Hmm. 
And that was it. I never did competitive sport again until mm. I was 32. I kind of, I, I, I wouldn't go near it because it was, that was men's business. Mm. And he would be glued to the sofa watching television for hours on end, which, so football was absolute, I still can't really get on with football. Mm. And so any kind of competitive sport was a no-no. So that experience just turned you off? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I was doing all right. I went on, went, you know, I sort of became bohemian, but at that point, really. And then, <laughs> you know, went to art school and, you know, I used to go dancing. I was always skateboarding. You know, that skateboarding wasn't a sport, though, even though it kept you fit. You know, from the age of 16 through till 28, mm. I was skateboarding. What, yeah. what was that like? Was that, was that different from the cycling culture? I mean, it went through various things. Now, I, I started in the first wave that really hit Britain in the mid-70s, when it was kind of a bit naff. Was that with, like, and the it, big boards? No, well, you, you <laughs> wore, some people had the, the really big boards, but then most people had sort of fairly little kind of fish-shaped boards. Okay. And then there was a, the second wave, which was in the 80s, um, when I really got into it in London, when there were big, wider boards much wider than they are now. Mm. Um, and then I sort of did that. But as I got older, I suppose falling you, off hurt more and more. Okay. Do, do, yeah. you, do you like to go fast? Do you get a thrill? Do you, do you, I know it sounds like a really obvious thing to say. F for me, cycling, sense of freedom. I felt It's also motorbiking. You know, I've motorbiked much more than anything. So I've always had motorbikes for 40 years. Mm and still very keen now. So I always got my fix of speed from that. And what I like in, in many ways is that motorbiking, you can't afford to go mad because it's, the consequences are too high. Mm. Whereas mountain biking, I'm in the forest, you can go off the hook a bit, you know, and you can go into that zone where you are totally dependent on your skills yep. of avoiding the next tree or whatever. But if it does go pear-shaped, it's not too bad because you're only going 20, 25 mile an hour, okay. you know. Whereas on a motorbike, you might be going a lot more, a lot faster than that. And the things you have to hit are a lot harder. Uh, sorry to make this about me. Got to stop saying that. I put myself under a lot of pressure with cycling. I got really decent level. Yeah. Uh, got pneumonia. Fell out of love with cycling. The thing that I loved turn me on it was me yeah bike racing men you know and then all of a sudden boom gone don't like it and i've just got back on the bike six days ago really just after how long uh this one was about a nine or a ten month spell of just nothing but something that i find really interesting because i know you talk about the default man which by the way we both agree with yeah cycling burns all that away i i think you look at Bradley Wiggins, Hearn Hill, he had hand-me-downs. I'm a big believer in hand-me-downs with cycling. You see these rich guys, you get them in Ilkley, probably get Richmond Park, all the gear, no idea. It's a, it's a, it's a saying in cycling. But with, um, but with cycling, but you can also get the, the young lad, because you would think cycling's quite a pricey sport, really. Yeah. It's not that cheap. Like, football's basically free. Because it's an expensive sport to get into. And a lot, like mountain biking, you have to drive there as well. Yeah. You know, one of the things that stopped me racing in mountain biking was the driving. 
you know, I got fed up of dri- of spending half a day driving mm. yeah. to do a two hour, do it. to do a two hour ride. Right. Just let I me drive do it. Three hours to do a two hour ride. <laughs> it just got pissed. You know, once I went to the national championships in Scarborough, it took me two days to get there. And my mech broke in the first lap. Two days. Did, <laughs> yeah. did you get the same train as... Uh... <laughs> well, no, it's because I, I stayed at somewhere on the way up. You know, I made it a two-day journey because it was too so far doing I, one day. I, I personally would struggle to ride a bike in London. You know, I'm blessed... Yeah, to... They're only going 20 mile an hour. Right. I'm, I'm, blessed cars. To, I'm blessed to live in Yorkshire. I'd rather ride down through Piccadilly Circus than on a normal country lane. Much safer. Mm. If you're going to get hit by a car, hit, get hit by something going 20 mile an hour in Piccadilly Circus. On the country lane, they're going down there, they're pretending they're, you know, racing drivers. How, how does cycling work alongside masculinity? Good question. Well, it's an outlet for your competitiveness. Right. I mean, me, I am always racing whatever I'm riding. So when I'm on my, even on that, that's, that's what I ride around town. Oh, is it? That's that? great for your leg strength. You know, oh, yeah. it's very you high gear. Ra- you cannot race that. Oh, God, I will. The other day, I was coming along uh, the embankment. I had a. I, I wanted to go to the specialist shop right in Dover in Chelsea, which is a fair way away, five yeah. or six miles away. And I hadn't done much exercise that week, so I thought, right, I'm really going to put in the effort coming back. And I was wearing normal clothes. I was on my Dutch bike. So I started tanking it down. And then I saw <laughs> yeah, this did. mammal in the distance, right? A what? A mammal. You know, a middle-aged man in like <laughs> I haven't heard of that. You haven't heard that no. one? I thought you were into cycling. That's right. But anyway. You'll become one of those. Tommy. Anyway. I saw one in the distance and he's, full, he's fully kitted up. Carbon, Rafa kit, you know. And you thought, right. I'm going to have you. Yeah, so, I, I'd think that. That thing, right. So I put it into top gear, which is a high gear because it's geared for Holland. That it thing. must weigh uh, about 20 kilos. At least, yeah. yeah. I pass him and I thought, right, he's going to come past me again to, to teach me a lesson in a minute. I really tanked it for about a mile and a half, you know, absolute on the rivet. And when we finally got to the end of the road, where, which was like uh, the House of Parliament, he sort of pulled up beside me, <laughs> like this guy, God, you're going, I thought you had an engine, he said. I said, nah, mate, you know, I said, it's, uh, it's your Rafa kit, mate. It works like a magnet. I just have to, I have to get past it. I, 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 ju- I, ju- I just want to say for the listeners that um, <laughs> my, my default mind because of having body dysmorphia in the past and not looking at myself in the mirror for over a year. Um, still struggling with that now. Grayson looks like your archetypal cyclist. He's in good shape. Um, uh, you know, not overly muscle-bound. I used to be thinner when I was racing. I was half yeah. a stone like No, you, you, look, you look svelte. Um, um, and when you're on the... I think you were on this morning... Were you on this morning recently with Alan Measles? Um, yeah. First thing I noticed, legs. Yeah, yeah. Glean to them, <laughs> tan, lean legs, and you just think automatically, this guy rides a bike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, I get complimented on my legs. Yeah, because, you've got you know, good legs, cy- mate. Cycling gives you good legs, you know. It's not a bad thing. So cycling allows you to be almost like a, an outlet for that aspect of masculinity. That yeah, I can remember aspect. my first race, and I had, it was, it was, I was 32, hmm. And I hadn't a clue how good I'd be because I, you know, I, I just mountain bike, mountain bike racing. I never, I never, I went straight into mountain bike racing, and I'd never done competitive sport since I was sixteen, and so I started at the back of the pack. Yeah, 
And within a few, you know, 100 metres, I was passing people and I was thinking, yeah, fucking eat my, <laughs> eat my dust, mate. And I thought, I, this is permission. I am allowed. Yes, yes, yeah. you are. And I, could, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I started getting, I started like being a little bit elbowy when it came into the single track and everything like that. And by the end of my first race, I thought, this is it. I like this. Yeah. I'm allowed to be a man. To mm. be... Oh. To be competitive, to be competitive. I wouldn't yeah, sorry. Yeah. They're no, not the same I'm, thing. I'm really glad you said that. I'm really glad you said I'm allowed to be competitive. Women can be just as competitive. Absolutely. 100%. Totally agree with that. I think cycling, for me, I think I had anger, did I, I think I had anger issues. I was awful on the bike. Were you I quite saw, aggressive? Mass, I had a terrible reputation. Did you? I would see people as leeches. Because, you know, when you draft behind someone, you save. Like, anyone gets on my wheel, you can fuck off. Really? See that as an invasion of me, as my energy. You're mm. sapping my energy. I remember my mum on the side, like, Tom, they're on your wheel. What are you doing, man? I was like, it's like you're, you're not using my energy. You're not using my kryptonite. This is me. Mm. Yeah. You're not drafting off me unless you're going to give me a turn. Well, mountain bike racing is different in that there's not a lot of drafting in it. I mean, occasionally you get a straight on a flat bit when you might use drafting. But, but, but it's but, harder. But, but you'd never, because, you know, you're... It, Mountain biking is, is often quick bursts, you know, or long drag up hills. So you don't have that drafting aspect. So it's much just you against the course. Yep. Often I found in mountain bike races that, say, you know, an average rate mountain bike race, there'd be like maybe a three or four mile lap and it would be sort of maybe five, seven laps or something like that. After the first lap, the, the positions of the race were pretty closely set mm. and it was whether you could hold position for that, you know, it was all in that first real adrenalized, super, you know, over the top, what would you call it, going anaerobic for the first <laughs> yeah. at least half a lap. BO2. And how fit you are was how long you could hold that anaerobic state and then settle down into your position and, and maybe even block people for a bit so that you could get your breath back. You have to technically be very good on a mountain bike. Yeah. And they've got mountain bike races, they've got, I've, I've done a couple fairly recently and they've got more technical than Which I can't do. I can't go around corners. Yeah, I find. One of my prides is even mm. on that thing, I pass road races on the corners because I've got more confidence. Mm. And from yeah. motorbiking as well, um, through an S bend, I can take on a road, yeah. a, a, especially these new road races. You know, did uh, did you get or do you get anything else out of cycling apart from that sort of competitiveness? Oh yeah, you get it's adrenaline. You know, mountain right. biking. It, you know, a lot of it, the fun is in the downhill, so you kind of enjoy the technical side of it. Mm. I enjoy like finding my way through the forest. You know, because you'd have to do that by instinct. And of course, there's nature out there as well. I also enjoyed the culture of it to a degree, until the culture in my the training group in Leeds at a time was unbelievably elite. Mm. Professionals, Olympians. Yeah, that was good to a degree because it made you into someone that couldn't be soft. And I'm going to use this word soft because I got called it a lot. What, what do you mean you're going to turn back? <laughs> Don't be soft. Yeah, uh, I never it, really experienced that much. That's what I was interested in because we spoke about this with Johnny Brownlee, the Olympic triathlete, because mm. he was in the training group with us. I found people calling me soft. Oh, it's raining, you're going to turn around? Don't be soft. Oh, no, I'm not going to be soft. Well, I got pneumonia. That's quite so destructive. Well that kind of, now, I mean, I. But, 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 the, sorry to interrupt. The argument was, it made me a better cyclist. 
Yeah, because I mean, when I was, was super keen and I had a, a coach online, you know, and he used to give me these programs. Did you? Yeah, and I did it for a year or two, and I found that you know, that I was getting, I was, I actually got to the point where I was overtraining, you know, and it wasn't. And when I racked it back a bit the year after, I was getting better results. Always happens because. You know, we're, we're pushed addicted. me too hard, really, and I was doing four mm. quite heavy sessions a week, well, that, and it was. That, yeah, that's what Johnny Brownlee was saying as well. That he's learned to have or to roll with variation and not to sort of pound it constantly. Yeah, I mean, you've got to give your body. I mean, now I'm 58. You know, I take much longer to recover, so I, I, I don't ride so much as I used to because I can feel it burning me out. The thing that did get me with cycling, because I am sensitive. Right. I know I am. Right. I'm going through counselling. I know I'm sensitive, and I've had a bit of a tough time recently, but it's fine, I'll get through it. Right. Um, cycling was, it was great for me, but it was also really bad for me. Um, couldn't do it as a hobby. Couldn't enjoy it. Right, yeah. I had to hurt people. Yeah. Um, but I'm starting to go through a process, because we've been... For this process where we started. It's an interesting thing that doesn't get, often get talked about is that transition between hobby to profession. Mm. And in my business, art, of course, it's loads of people's hobbies and few people's profession. Right, yeah. And so... Loads of people scrimping by. People see, they, I, I, you know, when people ask, what do you do? Oh, I'm an artist. Oh, that must be fun. That must be fun. <laughs> and I always go, okay, then imagine the scenario. You're shown this museum, you're shown a great big white room in a museum, mm. right? And they say, okay, in two years' time, you've got to fill this with new art, right? And so you've got to come up with the ideas. You've got to make the shit. Uh, your income depends on mm -hmm. it. And other people's income mm -hmm. depends on it. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to get raked over by the, work, the press. And people, loads of houses of people are going to come to this show and have opinions about it. How does it feel now? Fun? <laughs> yeah. You know. So that's the same as a paid athlete. Yeah. Exactly. Have you got the scrutiny mm. of the profession Does it take the and fun the away? audience? Mm. Yeah. It, well, it depends if you embrace it or not. You know, I've had a fairly slow... My career was very slow. I didn't really hit the jackpot until I was sort of probably 40. What, what was the jackpot? Well, you know, I, my work started selling for really good prices. It went beyond... You know, I didn't make a living from my work, you know, a living until I was about 38. And then wow. I started to make... But within about two or three years, I was making really good money. What was that like, that transition? Yeah. Well, it was exciting. Curiously, it... it, it uh, Did you ever go, got loads of money, right, lads, we're going uptown. <laughs> well, and I'm going to buy a carbon bike with, <laughs> with, with fucking carbon wheels. And, and this mammal guy, he can, he's a getting it. a ton of lycra. <laughs> well, it's funny you say about that. I mean, your attitude to money is another quite telling thing. I mean, I'm materialistic, unfortunately. You know, you know, I come from a working class background. I didn't have much money when I was growing up. And then when I started getting money, you know, my wife would say things like, you know, I'd, I'd look at something I fancied mm. and I'd say, oh, I really like one of them. And she'd look at me like, you can afford that. I think you're trying to spend Essex money, she'd say, <laughs> which was her word for saying you've got outdated idea of how much money you've got. Right. You know, and... So I'm much better now if I want to treat myself, you know, if I want to have a custom motorbike built, I'll go, yeah, I'll have it. Yorkshire Grit. I, going through counselling, and I, I want to be open about going through counselling. Yeah, and I've been through it. Um, and Grayson, you've been through it, I believe. Yeah, well, my period of 
success really overlapped with when I was having therapy. Mm. So I think it, you know, I don't want to put the, my success down to having therapy, but it did not hurt at one bit. You know, really? it really opened me up and it made me deal with success as much as failure. Did you mm. find it draining? Did you leave a session and were you like, that was well, harder than a bike you know, At the beginning, it can be quite sort of traumatic, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and I was quite sort of, I went into, I went very introverted for the first six mm. months at least and, you know, go for long moody walks mm. and think I was the existential <laughs> hero, you know. We've all been there. I, I, yeah. did, that, I did that the other what, day, I really enjoyed it. What, what, got, what got you into therapy, Grayson? Cause well, I guess my we've, wife we've is a therapist. Into... Okay, And, yeah. you know, so, and I was having, um, I was... I had very extreme emotional reactions to everything that happened to me. Mm. So if something went wrong, it was like my life is over. This is desperately bad, you know. And I had terrible temper. I was a terrible road rager. Mm. I was on my motorbike. Mm. If someone, you know, slightly infringed me yeah. or cut me up on And you weren't motorbike. even in a rush? Huh? And you're never in a rush. But oh, just... no, I was always in a rush. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nature of me. I was always in a rush. But if somebody, you know, did, did something that endangered me when mm. I was on the bike, you know, then I used to spit and shout and so then you were thinking hang on I should do something about this or <laughs> well yeah my wife thought I should particularly <laughs> yeah and well I, I yeah um I I that was my journey into therapy as well I didn't want to do it even though I'm a clinical psychologist and I I work therapeutically with people you didn't want to do it yeah because I didn't, not initially because you was I, f- was I felt vulnerable I felt um I think it is linked to masculinity that I felt yeah. you know I you know shouldn't be talking about these things yeah, it feels, I mean, it's a difficult leap for men to make. But then, you know, now I realise that vulnerability is one of our most useful things. Absolutely. So I seek out situations now where I'm vulnerable. I like doing things that are challenging. Yeah. So therefore, like, you know, I've recently taken up sort of, I do, a, I do shows on stage now because mm. that's dangerous, you know. Right. Uh, because if I make a cock up, but I find that... The more open you are, the more vulnerable you are. Yeah. Not only do you give gives you good relationship with with other people, it also works on stage as well. Because, Absolutely, you know, people know that you're you're human. Bit, yeah. When we were walking up here today, and you know, this has been a big deal for me and Tom. We've really because of your book. We got the train. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Down like, to London. Like Billy you're Elliot. very brave. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, it's been a you know we've really like had to think about it and. Um, uh, it has been a process, this whole journey so far for us. And I don't want to reference your book all the t- That's not your book. <laughs> I don't want to reference your book all the time because there's yeah. more to you. Uh, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, no, yeah. And I, um, and, f- and for me, motivation for cycling purely came from just wanting to win. I realised that I didn't want to train because it's quite a lonely pursuit, cycling. It's quite actually fucking depressing. Where I'm going with this is with art. Well, I start, I mean, I ask students, I, you, know, I say, you know, I say, I'm not interested in people who want to be artists. I'm interested in people who want to make art. Mm. Because if you, it's like winning is like, I'm not interested in winners, I'm, people, I'm interested in people who want to go cycling. Right. Yep. You know, right. and so... I have changed, by the way. No. You know, it's... So I, I came into art because I liked making art. I had no idea what the art world was or what, I'd never met an artist. I didn't, you know, know much about what they did. I just went in because, you know, I like making art. I like making things when I was a kid. And my art teacher said, I think you'd do well at art school. Mm. And he could see my unconscious sort of leaking out 
in my work. Is that like Golden Ghosts one? But the, was that linked to like therapy and maybe a time? That was from that period, yeah. Okay. I mean, all that work around that period, the sort of from about sort of 98 through till 2004 was very um, linked to the things that were coming up for me in therapy. Mm. Um, I, I mean, think that's why you work so good, mate. Like, like seriously, I'm not an art critic. I'm not Saatchi. I'm not Snickler Sorota. But, you know, when you look at your stuff, you can't... It is just really... It's really nice to look at. And I was only joking in the letter where I said, you know, like, uh, uh, Anish Kapoor and Andy Goldsworthy, like, your stuff is visually... Yeah, I mean, I try to make things... I mean... I make work that I think is accessible but mm. about difficult things. You know, that's my, my, that's my basic premise for working. Is I, I work with traditional forms because most people will understand, you know, what it is. You know, it's a part, it's a part a tapestry is a tapestry, mm. a map is a map. You know, they understand that. And then we can deal with the, the, the issues, you know, that are in, in the work, whether it be class or identity or masculinity right. or whatever, you know. But it, it, a lot of our, you know, people, but the, the, the initial thing is like, oh, what is it? You know, what is that about? Yeah. You know, and I, it, I, don't, I don't want to deal with that as with people. So I, always, I lead them quite straight right. in there. So you're quite direct with it. Yeah, and it's decorative. Yeah, in in your book, you said you said that you used art partly as a way of sort of escaping the, that masculine history within your family. Um, well, it was. I think what it was, it sort of very much bound up with the way I played as a kid, you know. And I had a very strong imaginary world, which was where I kind of um, metaphorized what was going on for me, mm -hmm. you know, so all of the kind of the basic narrative of my childhood games was a metaphor what was going on in my family. Okay. You know, so Alan Mies was, was, was my kind of absent father and the Germans were my stepfather and... I have an Alan Measles, by the way, and I'm going to go on record and I say I think every man has an Alan Measles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of idealised, internalised man you know and i think that all, all we all take on board our gender roles in sort of drips from our family mm -hmm. and from society and that builds up that picture of the idealized man that we kind of compare ourselves to the whole time mm. and it's really good and trying not to yeah it's good there to take that out of the box and say you know is that worth living up to and you the know. answer's no. <laughs> yeah, it's not worth living up to on the whole. But I think a lot of people, they're not even aware they've got that all the time. So they're making decisions about what they do and mm, what yeah. they buy and who they hang out with based on... Social media, what Instagram post. Yeah, and I think social media is almost perfectly designed to supply that because yes. it's, it kills you. It goes straight into your mind. It's, you know, it's constructed like a human mind. Yeah. It's all, it's, so it's like a drug. It just goes straight in. Yeah. It just reinforces all the constructs. Doesn't yeah. It? Boom, boom, boom. It's, it's a really perfectly great. Def I need to write that down. It just, cause it does. You just on a morning. Boom. Shoom, feel straight shit about myself. Ma masculine norms. Boom. I haven't got up at 6am and I'd avocado on toast before going to the gym. Fuck. This is the Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Are there, are there parallels between sport and cycling and art? Uh, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, with what I like about sport is it's empirical. Mm. You know, I hate sports where there's judges. I hate them. Like, you know, diving, <laughs> you know, ice skating. So you don't like they're VAR, not sports then. because there isn't a finish line, there isn't a stopwatch. Yeah. You know, with a bike race, 
The bloke who goes over the line first is the winner. Exactly. You know, there's no dispute. Black and white. Yeah. Tour de France, 21 days. Get on with it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I like about it. <laughs> and, you know, art isn't like that. Art is very different in that the winners are kind of a collectively approved... You know, there's a kind of jury okay. of kind of tastemakers <clears throat> there who are people who know what they're talking about. You know, they've looked at a lot of art. You know, they're the dealers, the curators, the correct collectors, the mm. critics, you know, all these people. Between them, they agree who's good, mm. you know. And, the, and, and as you get further on in your career and you, then you go into history, mm-hmm. then that, you know, it's like a big filter system that gradually... Filters out the shite, you know. <laughs> do, do you get aspects of traditional masculinity, in inverted commas, within the art world? Yeah, I mean, the art world has always been very progressive, though. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 on the whole, politically and socially, is ahead of the game. You know, mm-hmm. when I won the Turner Prize, I said, you know, I think people had more problems with me making pots than they did about me dressing up in dresses. You know, because... You know that uh, the art world has always been very understanding about sexuality. Uh-huh. And ge- you know, to a certain extent, gender is only now coming thing, and also it's been very sort of Eurocentric, right? And you know, male, and to a certain extent, middle class as well. So yeah, middle class, yeah. Um, the sort of the version of masculinity that it kind of projects is a kind of educated old school man you know mm. um, and that's mm. one of the things I really enjoy kicking against <laughs> is the kind of uh, the tyranny of the intellectual bubble uh-huh. you know the way that the art has become uh, they prioritise the intellectual and they the emotional and the physical are seen as less than mm. and I think a lot you know as human beings you well know that those are just as important parts of who we are. Absolutely. But the art world does tend to over-prioritise, particularly in the last 50 years or so, the, the kind of, the ideas and the concepts over okay. the sensual or the kind of, yeah. The, the so the more sort of cognitive, emotion, rational aspect. Yeah. And, the, and the price tag? I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've never been embarrassed about the financial aspect. Right. I mean, it's an interesting place. Mm. You know, if you're on the right side of it it's a fantastic place to to earn a living you know I make a really good living from Mm. it and um, I hadn't really thought about money really with with art yeah Yeah, very few artists it doesn't turn me on I'm not I know Jeff Koons makes loads doesn't he yeah he's one of the wealthiest yeah he's probably got hundreds of millions you know because he's he's you know he's got a kind of uh, what we call it a practice where you know he can really capitalise on that but that doesn't, I don't, I'm going to use a terrible analogy here, but if I was maybe dating someone, mm. I don't care about the job and how much they earn. I don't, I, it's wherever I like you. Yeah. It's wherever I love you, if I think I could be with you. And with art, it's exactly... But just imagine it, though, if loads and loads of people wanted to go out with that person... Right, the one it's called Tinder. I'm like, no, (laughs) no. Sorry, (laughs) you know what? If loads and loads of people wanted to go out with that person, and then that person, well, I'll go out with the one who's got the most money. If Mm. you all like me, I'd be, I'd be like, (sighs) because that's how you know. Because you, I think it's it's just two people who both want something. How far do they want? Mm. I mean, my record auction price 
was only because it was complete outlier in my outbreak. You know, this one part went for like shed loads how, of money. How, how much, if we don't It know. went for 620,000. Mm. Do you know who bought it? Was it? Yeah, I've met the guy that bought it and it, and it, and it, and it went like that because two people wanted it. You know, and so they pushed, they pushed each other to go like they both really, really wanted it. When you saw that price tag, were you turned on? Were you like, I was a bit shocked because it has it has sort of consequences on you. I mean, it was an outlier. So in in general, you think about what your normal upper range would be, you uh-huh. know, and then you get these auction prices that go ballistic because of whatever reason. Um, but yeah, you know, the the financial aspect is linked to how popular you are because there's a kind of virtuous circle of if you're popular, then a gallery wants you to have an exhibition because loads of people will visit and pub their public money so they have to justify their existence. Mm. And then the collectors and the commercial side is looking to the public sector for their approval because they've got high intellectual credibility. So then they will buy the works that are bought by museums or shown in museums. And so there's a kind of virtuous circle that goes round like that. So, you know, I'm lucky I tick most of those boxes. The one people that... The people I'm probably I'm least popular with are the kind of intellectual art magazine kind of, you know. Mm. Why is that? Because I take the piss out of them a lot. <laughs> because okay. I'm just, I, I could maybe Im- I'm just dumb, I don't know. I well, could imagine you at an open, uh, 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 you know, I've been to some openings, nothing like on your scale, but at the Baltic, my dad helped at the Baltic yeah. and stuff. And, and, I, and I remember what it was like. And, his, um, and I, can, I can imagine you maybe not really that being your bag so well it is my bag it's the world i've grown up in it's my you know it's my world they're my uh, colleagues you know they're my it's my tribe mm. you know i've to get on in the art world one of the things you have to be good at is socializing right. you know because it's 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 you know it's it's people want to have good relationships with you when you're working with them I mean, most people come into the art world not to make money but to have a good time you know, because they enjoy art and they enjoy art people. And so, you know, the, when people ask me advice about, you know, how do I get on in the art world, I always say, turn up on time and put in the hours mm. and be nice. Because no one wants <laughs> to work with the arsehole, I can tell you. you right. know, there's artists I could name whose careers did not flourish as well as they could have done because they were arseholes to work with. They just thought they were mint. They were well, they, you know, they'd have one exhibition and then the word would get round that they, would, you know, they, they never delivered on time or they were mm. really, you know, they were just rude or unreliable. Really? Or, yeah. Do you have... Didn't know that. Do you have times when you're lacking in motivation? Yeah, of course. Yeah? My dad... He's going to shoot me if I don't use this bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we we got he him sat down. Us down. He sat us down and gave us a bit of a lecture. A, 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 a positive one. Yeah, it was helpful. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> this is true. Melancholia by Albert Dürer. Oh, right, yeah. Famous uh, print. Artist hitting the wall. There you go, Dad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all artists, you know, you get a kind of point when you're not feeling it. So you go and do something else. Cycling is a, cycling and motorcycling are two of the things where I go off to clear my mm. mind. You know, because you, you know when I'm on either of them, my main thought is let's not crash. You know, you're going along <laughs> and you're thinking you're in the moment. Yeah, you're in the moment. <laughs> Don't and that's die. Great. Danny wanted to know if you had a routine. Yeah. Do, do, does Grayson have? Do you? Because it, you know, yeah, because it's a job, isn't it? You know, I'm here by nine. Mm. 
and I work through normally till five, sometimes six, and I, you know, I've got things to do, and I, you know, you learn. I mean, when you when you've been doing it as long as I am, you learn. Like a, a, a sportsman would learn what their body is capable of and how to kind of moderate their efforts and right stuff that. like that. Well, an artist has the same thing. You know, you, I know that don't start anything new in the afternoon if you can help it because, you know, you'll be here all is, night. Yep. <laughs> well, no, it's not that. It's, it's, it's just that your mind, you know, isn't as sharp. So my faculties are sharper. So I tend to start new things in the morning, you know, and I'll do the plodding work in the afternoon. Mm. And then you learn, you know, like for instance, uh, I get a lot of ideas while I've had a couple of beers in front of the telly. Mm. So I'll sit there with my sketchbook when I've got half an eye, you know, with some quite trashy telly on, and then I'll just have a couple of beers and I, I can draw in my sketchbook. And that, that's when I'm really kind of loose and not caring too much. Do, do you have times when you're, you're driven towards perfectionism? It's just because it's something we've talked about. As, it's all right uh, not un, to be perfect. Uh, under, under the umbrella of... Uh, being a human, I think it's not just a masculine thing. But I think Grayson has to um, be perfect. With no, what he does. I'm not at all. I'm really. Clear. Yeah, if I've got a motto, it's that will do. Good enough. Yeah, good enough. Because there's two sorts of people in the world. You know, there's perfectionists and there's people who say that will do. Yeah. And the second people are always happier. That's me. That'll do. Yeah, they are always happier because if you're that person who's going to look for the perfect pair of shoes and they're going to spend all day, does that will do personal going? They'll get something in the ballpark. And this, 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 the where it really comes in is with a partner. A lot mm. of people think there's Mister and Miss Wright out right. there. Get yeah. someone in the ballpark, mate. And intimacy is is affecting each other, and so you come together by mutual impact. And the idea, you know, if you if you're already perfect, you're just going to go like that, right? You grow together, you know, you knock the corners off each other. Get someone in the ballpark. Completely. You know, they, they obviously don't want someone who completely revolts you, but just get someone who's like, you, you know... Just mild. You know, this is, this is mild I, need to, I need to write this down, because this is one... I, I don't like it when someone likes me with a partner. I can't, you know, if someone likes me, I just... That'll be a big part of your therapy, Is it mate. because you don't think you're likeable then? Yeah, you feel like you're not worth it. Psychologist hat on. <laughs> I'm just turned on more when someone doesn't like me. Yeah, well, our sexuality is an interesting mm. kind of grab bag of our <clears throat> uh, childhood uh, experiences, isn't it? You know, but, it's our sexuality is formed in childhood. You know, so yeah. uh, God, what, you know, <laughs> it's always out of date. Basically, I mean, like if they, if they were going to invent how sexuality was developed. You know. It's it pretty much until puberty, and then at puberty, I always think you go up to a little gate when puberty hits, and a man <laughs> a comes up gate. to a window. Yeah, it comes up to the window, like in a kind of box office, and you say, "And you say, I'm I'm hitting puberty now." And he said, "All right, okay, mate, hand in your chip." So this is what you, you know, and then all the your computer prints it, and, it, and, it, and it go, <laughs> "Yeah, mate, you're a tr heterosexual transvestite. You're, you're stuck with that. Yeah. <laughs> all the best. Yeah, good luck. You know, and and that's how it works. You know, and yeah. so." And of course, what happens as well is, is that you've absorbed the gender politics of your childhood as well. Yeah. So the, the way men and women acted together in your family, in your childhood, that is what turns you on. If you get what I mean. So if women are seen as less than, then you have a kind of, you want, you, you, you have a less than view of the women. I've always thought that women hold the trump card. Well, there you go. You probably want to be dominated by someone then. 
But, but, Pause. Not, but, but, but that's, a, that's a good point yeah, to have yeah, a break. Yeah. I need to go to the toilet. I was going to go. We'll just, we'll just end it there. So that's it. Because my mum and dad are going to listen. Yorkshire Grit. So what was, what was therapy like for you? I loved it. Did you? It was pretty traumatic at first, but um, mm. I used to describe it as going to the movies every week where I, it was a weepy and I was a star. You're the star. Yeah, definitely. I liked the attention. Yeah. And um, it was really good for me. You know, I had a male therapist. Mm. He was, it was, you know, it really worked. I was shocked. First session, I was completely in shock. Really? Because I hadn't really cried for a long time. And I was in floods by about halfway through. That's interesting because that's similar to both uh, Tommy and my experience of first sessions. Yeah, I think a lot of men, it's really, you know, they don't cry very often. And mm. then, um, you know, therapists, that's their job, you know, to ask the right question. Yeah. And, and to sit with it. I was completely shocked by it. It just came out, you know. I thought, this isn't me. And then, and you know, and the therapist sort of, you know, like a lot of therapists, he sort of said, you know, this first session is just to see whether we can work together. Yeah. Know? And, at the, you know, after the, I think we've got somewhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> You've cried? Six that's years later, thing. you know. Yeah, um, no, I had a lot of baggage to work through. Dreams were brilliant as well. That was the dreams. thing I really enjoyed. Yeah, dreams. I, I never remembered my dreams now, but when I was in therapy, I was remembering at least one yeah. week. That was weird. Because I felt like I had to almost have like a, tra- it was like a training bike in therapy, learning how to talk. You know, like training wheels. You learn how to talk and become more comfortable and then you just yeah. take them off and then you're ready. I did group therapy as well on top of it. Did you? Which I, I did this course where you learned about the theory in the morning. Okay. And then you did it in the you afternoon. Go in you and practiced it, it in yeah. the afternoon with the group. And that was absolutely amazing. Yeah. I've been on the other side as a therapist in group therapy, but never as a... Group therapy is interesting because yeah. it really bring you know, you... It, yeah, it's like, ooh, it's... Yeah, it's, it's powerful because you have to do you have to do it in front of twenty people. Yeah. I had a big group, twenty people, and the dynamics can be really complex. Can't yeah, it? yeah, a lot of all going on. I, you know, I had this instance of transference where there was this one guy who I really took against, and I really didn't like him. Everything about him I hated. Mm. Right, the way he moved, the way he spoke, wow. he cracked his knuckles. Ah. I hated him for it, and and I spoke to my therapist about it. He said, "Does he remind you of anyone?" <laughs> like this. Ha. <laughs> yeah. And I go, oh, fuck. Because I used to call my unconscious the cliche generator. Uh, you know, and I said, yeah, that's right. My stepfather was about the same age and the same build and the same colouring. And he cracked his knuckles. He said, there you go. Touche. I never, I, I've got, you know, all of that hatred went in a second. That was classic transference. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast with Tommy Bustard. Grayson, how are we going to do masculinity differently? How, how are we going to do it? Because well, it, it's t- tricky, isn't it? In, in your book, you, you talk about letting the mask drop and you talk about it being a tough sell. It is a tough sell, isn't it? Can I, can I still be a man on the bike, though? Well, that's what I, I suggest in the book. You know, it's yeah. like your wetsuit, you put it on at the weekend, you know, when you do your action we, sports. We, we've called, because we've got, you've got default man, we've called this flexi man. Yeah, how can I be yeah. a flexi man? Flexi man. Because I, I would like, I that, really generally want to that be. That is trademarked. You know, it's great to be butch when you're on, you know, I enjoy it on my motorbike, you know, I put on my leather jacket and I dress up as a man. Mm. Um, <laughs> or you're on your push bike, you know, and you're, 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 at, you know, you're at the top of the descent and you're going to really go for it or whatever, you know. Yeah. That's when, you know, it's, it's thrilling. It feel, it's, it's often it feels like it's a sports car or a tool 
you finally got to use it. <laughs> you can use your masculinity for what eons right. of... To be brave uh, going down a hill at 60 miles an hour is not easy. No, and it, that's what masculinity, you know, what that aspect of masculinity was, was, has evolved for. So you, you engage it, but in the right context. Yeah, when I'm going through the forest at high speed, you know, and I'm really, and I'm enjoying every little slide. Throwing it over. I'm really throwing it over. <laughs> and I think this is just like, you know, I'm using the same skills that hunters would have had in yeah. prehistoric man. I'm right. finding my way through, um, you know, three-dimensional, all those things. That's where masculinity... It's not really appropriate at the workplace. <laughs> right. That, I, like how, I like the analogy you use then, hunting, because I watched Danny Dyer the other day and he does this program on finding out about his family. Yeah. And he looked at the Tudors and how they dressed. Yeah. And I wrote it down, but I thought, oh, uh, uh, oh, I must sound intelligent for Grace and I think he'll really appreciate this. Well, Danny like, Dyer. <laughs> yeah. No, I was like, paused it. I was like, right, fuck. Uh, like, Tudors wore cod pieces. Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck? Like actual, well, a lot of men in that era, and they had their know, wealth on their knuckles. Like you know, man on man action was really common. You know, yeah. so they, they sort of you know all, those fashions all developed because you know a beautiful man would be seen. You know, they were a thing that was much admired by both sexes. Mm-hmm. So a good pair of legs. That's why the the the, the doublets got shorter and shorter. So you, yeah, woo-hoo, you know, and then you, you know, it was and the all big about, shoulders and the big cape. Yeah, but I'm not. Um, I'm I'm not gay. I am straight. I've always, I've always, if, it, if I find a guy good looking, I've always gone, good looking guy. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I've always been really comfortable with that. I've always, like, Danny will laugh, but I've always been in, like, bum taps. I've always really, like, it's never bothered me. Well, why do, why do cyclists really shave their legs? Because it looks good. Yeah, vanity. It looks right. Good. The old wise tale makes you go faster. <laughs> It's bollocks. Aerodynamics. <laughs> no, it's mainly about it. You know, a, a hairy leg sticking out of a lycra short, which does not look good. No, but the new masculinity. One of the reasons it's it's a, it's, a, it's a hard sell is that it hasn't got the fantastic back catalogue that you know old masculinity has got. You know, right. we've got the entire canon of sort of literature, film, TV. Yeah. Everything is telling us, you know, how men used to be. And you know the hero, the typical male and the hero. The things you can have, and they're glamorous and exciting, and yeah. but, and it's very few. And I, you know, whenever I'm put on the spot and said, "Can you name?" Them? It's really hard to come up with people you know who you think are good examples of a different kind. I mean, Obama is the one I always go for. Mm. Thoughtful, balanced. I'm trying to think. He's very emotional. You know, yeah. He's very warm. He's a great people he's, person. He's emotionally intelligent. Yeah. I think it will happen organically, but it's... It, Do you think we'll get to a stage where... It takes a long time, because gender is one of our most deepest conditionings, right. the you, deepest part of our identity. Yeah. Do you think we'll get to a stage where that construct is gone? Or do you think we need it at the moment? To, we still have to frame it in that way, don't we? People talk about post-gender, right. you know, and I think that it's not going to be needed, because we need to breed, and then there's a sort of... You know, there are, it's such a deep-seated thing. It's going to take generations and generations uh-huh. to scrub it away. You know, there, 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 are, there might be some physical predispositions for gendered behaviour, but most of it is cultural. But that's not to take it lightly because those cultural tropes are so pervasive in yes. society and tiny little nods and winks. I mean, my wife uses the one where she says that there's a study done of women who knew what sex their baby was before it was born mm. and how they talked about 
the baby's behaviour in the womb. Right. And they were already gendering right. the baby. They were, if it was a boy, it was like, oh, he's going to be a footballer, he's kicking really strong. Right. Well, if it was a girl, they'd say, oh, it's like waves. Because and, it's, and, it's, and it's reinforced in, in thousands of tiny little ways. Yeah. And middle-class parents, they go, oh, no, we, don't, we, don't, we bring up our children. You know, it's completely neutral. And I always ask them, Okay then. Uh, so, if your son wanted to wear a dress, would you just let him go to school wearing a dress uh-huh. then, like that? Or you know, uh, and it, then it's like, oh well, mm, you know. And, and who does the uh, who does the childcare in your house? Or who does the housework? You know. Uh, well, if it's not you, love, it's probably you. Probably pay another woman to right. do it, don't you? <laughs> I've had two experiences recently, right? Where I cannot tell you how much I wanted to act like a man. Yeah, what were they? Were they classic? Uh, I said, no, I've had enough. I've had enough. I need to be. I, I need to be a manny. I need to man up. It's time. You know, I can only be. I can only take so much. Yeah. My natural instinct yeah, yeah, yeah. was to just. But I didn't. I didn't. And. Uh, but yeah, that really tested me to not to to to, to blood and thunder and. Yeah, I know. That's a, I, I can identify with that. Mm, me too. I mean, but I'm proud I didn't. I've gra- you know I've ratcheted back my road rage over the decades. You know, in my twenties, I was absolutely ballistic. I'd go ballistic on a, on the slightest infringement, mm. and then I would only go ballistic with a major infringement. You know, <laughs> and then now, most of the time, it's like like the other day, I was out on my motorbike. I'm going along, not breaking the speed limit, and a guy just pulls out on me right and. Back in the day. Emergency stop. Right. We're there, eyeball to eyeball, me on my motorbike. And I just go... Like that. Yeah. yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Pointing it out, leaving it. Is, is, yeah. I could, I, that I, takes yeah. years. But he was, he was like going, my bad. It takes time, though, to become that. But in, if, if it had been in my 20s, I would have probably kicked the bike over, just walked over and started right. kicking the car. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'd like to have seen that. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Grayson, have you got any final words of wisdom? This oh, is so oh, cliche. Have you got any final words of wisdom for, you know, listeners who are maybe struggling or just maybe curious about how to do masculinity Talk to people differently? And, yeah. and, and, you know, embarrassment is just a, a kind of fantasy about what other people are thinking. Right. And you'll be surprised how endearing and positive the reaction would be to being open mm. i think that's the big fear for men often yes that's, that's what we yes you know and i think that if you know i've had conversations with men many times where i've gone oh this happened to me and they've gone and they've almost been dying to talk about right that. and it all comes out yeah i mean I, i'm quite often up the motorbike hut you know and if you can kind of introduce a kind of softer topic rather than so one guy out there once he said a brilliant thing he said Oh, I get it. You can talk about anything as long as you talk about motorbikes. <laughs> and what it, what he was saying in a way was that it's all metaphorical. Yes. And it's all about intimacy. And yet you, we mask it with men talk about sport mm-hmm. or they talk about cars. Yeah, you can't be... And what they really want is intimacy. Right. And so the first like little sign you make that, okay, we know you can talk about your divorce now. And it's like, whoa! Then you're the in. floodgate opens. Yes. I have conversations with taxi drivers like that. If you just open a little... I mean, my wife, she's terrible. We go to a dinner and some bloke will come up to me after the dinner, you know, and he's been sitting next to her at the other end of the table, you know, and you'll say, oh, I love your wife. I love your wife. And I think, oh, what's she done? 
<laughs> and she's Therapy just session. opened up yeah. the curtain a little bit just yeah. to have a peek. Yeah. Okay. No. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm really going to. Yeah. This has been a moment for for, for me. Mm. It really has, and I feel I'm, inspired. Yeah, I do. Good. And you know, you're not Stephen Gerrard. You're not Bradley Wiggins, but. In a way, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, where, where are you going with that? No, Tommy? no, because I've always, because I've always looked at, I've always looked. I had at, the Stephen Gerrard of ceramics. <laughs> I've always looked at um, role models as me as as I don't know really. Those those sort of traditional male role models. These sort of changes don't happen by just reading it once. No, you know, really, why does religion work? Because you go to church every week. I said, you have to act it out. Yeah, Yeah, sit on the edge of your bed. You have to prepare it, plan it. Really actually make a beeline to try and be like like a diet. I'm I'm actually generally going to try. I'm really, and and I have uh, recently. You have, you've been doing great. It's like most things in therapy, you can't get anywhere if you're not um, reflective. You know, you have to be reflecting on what's going on for you and then you can change things. It's good to have sort of hook things in your mind, though, like certain phrases and situations that kind of trigger little chunks of information yes. that you've picked up. And they're like good building blocks for beginning how to behave differently. Yeah. You know? So maybe your trigger points or something, you go, oh, hang on, this could yeah. trigger me. Step back. Yeah. Just certain ways of talking, you know, and then just think, what's, what's the recommended way of dealing with this? You know? I'm just trying not to compare myself to people, but that is so easier said than done. That is really, for me, just, that's so easy said than done. I I don't know if I'll ever not be able to do that. That's another thing, though, where you can catch it. It's it's difficult, the comparison might start, but if you catch it before it sends you down a road of... It's the the classic old, you know, road less travelled thing, isn't it? You know, you see the whole, you know this thing, don't you? No. You go down, well, the classic thing is, the first stage is, you go down the road, there's a hole in the road, you fall in the hole. The second stage is you go down the road, you see the hole in the road, but you still fall in it. <laughs> the third stage is you go down the road, you see the hole, you walk round. Sounds like hole. me and my bike. The fourth, <laughs> the fourth stage is you go down a different you go down, road. Yeah. And then maybe fall down another hole later on. Yeah. And that's but, okay. You know, that's, that's, that's how therapy works. You know, that you, is. You, my wife used to get people come in on the first week and she would, you know, talk to them for an hour and she'd say, I can see what your major issues are and, you know, blah, 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 and maybe go through them with them like that. They'd still be talking about them in five years' time Hmm. because they don't go away that quick. You know, they see the hole, but they're still falling in it. We go back to default sometimes. Yeah. It takes a while. It takes practice. It takes, you know... It takes bravery, I think, as well, to step outside of that default. I know some lads who would never, ever, ever even go near the subject mm. well bravery is interesting you know i think it's a good word for men to use because it's a quality that they you know that often they give lip service to mm. but it's not brave to be you know an idiot on a bike it's just you're just doing the default man thing in mm. a way i mean i you know uh it's brave though to sort of do something that you're going to be ridiculed for potentially humiliated you know mm-hmm. or whatever or you can fail Yes. I don't mind failing. That's where bravery comes into it. Absolutely. Don't mind failing. As long as I tried my best. Yeah, definitely been a moment I don't think I'll ever forget. And I think it's been... Tom, you've been cool hand. Tom, you have been as ever fantastic. Thanks, Tommy. Danny from Yarm, thank you for coming today. 
No, honestly, mate, thank you very much. You've really helped out. And the man, Grayson Perry, you've, you've, yeah, you, yeah, you, you, you are, you are inspirational. Thank you. Thanks, I like Grayson. Being inspirational. Yeah. <laughs> no, you are in a, in a way that in a way that I've ne in, in, in a way that's never inspired me before. It's weird. Well, another thing I do, and I think a lot of men do, is I protect my tender parts with humour and cynicism. Mm. And it's quite a challenge to abandon them and be sincere, because that is, you know, a really, for, particularly for British people, mm -hmm. because we are culturally, you know, we're very irony heavy, and so to for us to expose ourselves, because if you're sincere about something, you're open to ridicule. Yeah. And so I thank you. Well, no, thank you. Thank and you. Thank you very much, Grayson. And uh, yeah, tune in next time. As always, at the end of every podcast, we always try and reference a... Um, we, we try not to do it as a, as a, as a throwaway coin, but we always try to reference a, a helpline that you can use. We used Samaritans last time, and there is a, a website, a group called Calm Zone. They are really, really good. They're open 24 7, um, and you can actually um, type in a message and they actually reply to you there and then. That's the uh, campaign against living miserably. It is. So, yeah, no, thank you again, Grayson. Thank you, Danny, and thank you. Thanks, everyone. Tom, thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye. The Yorkshire Grit Podcast. Subscribe now on iTunes and Spotify.